0: Welcome to the Lowenstein sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein sandler Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowensteincom slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen.
1: Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Practice here at Lowenstein sandler And today, we're pleased to launch a new series on a very important topic in the insurance space, which is mediation. As many of our listeners know, there are lots of ways to get an insurance company to pay the claim. One that many are familiar with is to go to court um, and get your legal relief from the judicial system. But another way to do it is through the use of mediation. And that's something that We've seen in our practice being used with increased frequency, not only after years of coverage litigation, but also sometimes using mediation before you ever have to go to court. So we thought it would be a good idea to break down the mediation process through a series of episodes that we're going to do that will walk you through the nuts and bolts of how to prepare for your mediation how to conduct the mediation itself, and then also to make sure that you leave the mediation with actually a signed settlement agreement where you get paid. So in today's episode, I'm very pleased to welcome my partner, Andrew Reedy, and Joe Seka, Senior Counsel in the Insurance Recovery Group, so that we can start with step one in that series, which is the nuts and bolts of preparing for the mediation, how to set yourself up for success. So Andrew and Joe, uh, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks, Linda. Glad to be here. This is one of my favorite topics.
1: All right. Great. All right. So uh, since it's your favorite topic, Andrew, let's just jump right in. So what's the right time to mediate a case?
2: Uh, That's a great question. I think it really depends on what your needs are. But the primary thing that I think dictates the timing for mediation is how much information does the insurer have about the claim? If they have no information... It's really hard to mediate a resolution. On the other hand, if they have a lot of factual information, perhaps not everything they want, but a lot of factual information, a lot of damages information, then the, the claim is typically ready for mediation.
1: All right. It depends. The typical lawyer answer. Thanks, Andrew, for joining us. No, that's 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 it really. That's a that's that's a great tip. And so how do you go about selecting the mediator? Is that something that the policyholder gets to decide, do you use the mediator that the carriers want to use? Like what's what's the best way to set this off on the right foot in selecting the mediator?
2: Well, the selection of a mediator oftentimes is, is most of the time is a negotiated process with counsel for the insurance carrier. I like to look at a couple of things. Uh, one is the knowledge of insurance cases. Have they mediated insurance coverage cases before? Insurance coverage cases, have their own language, their own rules of construction, their own factors and in how insurance companies and their levels of authorities work. You So you want somebody who has experience with coverage cases. Also, like anything, you want a track record of success. You want somebody who actually has, has closed these cases out. Anybody can mediate a case, but bring them to resolution. That's what you're looking for. And the good ones are hard to get. Uh, oftentimes, there is a couple of months before you get them on the to mediate a case, but they're worth it because they close cases out.
1: Yeah. And what I've found is some, you know, for a long time, I was reluctant to use the old standby list from the insurers list of mediators or preferred mediators. And I've really come around to the idea that sometimes that knee jerk reaction may not be the best. Sometimes using a mediator that the carriers are comfortable with will actually at least expedite if not entirely to f- facilitate the process of getting to yes on getting a claim paid so so joe tell me who should attend the mediation on your client's behalf and are there any other players in the insurance space who should come besides just your client
3: sure so i think you'll you'll certainly want your client and you'll want counsel to be there on your client's behalf but you're going to want somebody who knows the facts of the, the case um Oftentimes, if we're dealing with a liability claim, it's helpful to have underlying defense counsel there to answer questions regarding some of the facts of the underlying claim. But from the insurance side, the the key is making sure that you have somebody who has real authority to be in a position to settle the claim. So you want to, even if the person who shows up himself doesn't have authority, you want to make sure that they'll be able to get get there to the full demand level on the day of the mediation.
1: So from the client, Do you need someone from the risk management department there too?
3: Sometimes it's helpful to have somebody from the risk management department if there's questions regarding the underwriting and the purchase of the claim. But typically, if something like that's not an issue, then having just counsel, in-house counsel who has authority is sufficient.
1: So this has never happened before. What do you do when the insurance rep wants to have someone available by phone? (laughs) (laughs) What's going to happen with that? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Oftentimes, as we find in a lot of mediations with insurance, it it leads to a long uh, lag time in between your last settlement offer and receiving a response. But these last two years have really given us a lesson in in virtual mediations where there's really no excuse that somebody shouldn't be uh, available.
1: Well, Joe, I'm really glad that you brought that up because we are uh, being forced into the virtual world doing Zoom mediations. And do you find that that has facilitated the process or is it obstructing it? And, and Joe or Andrew, either one of you can jump in on that.
2: Yeah, Joe, I'm not sure whether I have a view on that. I, I would say this, though, whether it's in person or virtual, you have to be prepared to be frustrated. The insurance company <laughs> plan is to slow down the game. I mean, really make it if you give an offer at 11 o'clock, you may not hear back from them until three o'clock, not because they're in there analyzing your claim for four hours. Just part of the game. They like to go incrementally in their responses and they like to slow it down.
1: Yeah, Andrew, to that point, uh, back in the olden days when we used to be able to do this in person, I always loved the question at the beginning of the day uh, So, what time's your flight or what time's your train? Because then, of course, folks work back from that to see how long they have to string you along before it's going to get real, right? So Joe, what about you? What do you think about the virtual world and whether that has facilitated or obstructed the mediation process? I mean, as you said, on the one hand, it's great uh, that the carrier can't have the excuse that the person, it's too hard for them to travel or their schedule's too tight. But what have you seen in practice with that?
3: Yeah, I think my view is that it certainly makes it easier to get mediations done. The flip side of that coin though, is that I think sometimes parties come less invested to the mediation process itself. So that results in them not coming really the vision of trying to get a deal done.
1: Yep. And it's hard to twist an arm over a screen. So uh, hopefully we'll all get back in person uh, soon enough. All right, Andrew. So what about the, this all important issue? You mentioned before how important it is to have your facts, have your damages. Where do you come out on whether to give that demand that's going to start the mediation process, where do you come out on the question of whether it makes sense to make that demand before you get to the mediation and or whether to present it for the first time uh, at the mediation? And I'll expect that you'll say it depends and you'll give us both sides of the coin.
2: <laughs> yes, it does. depend. <laughs> um, but the, well, the first thing that springs to mind is uh, where is the claim in, in the process? Is it pre-suit? Is it the complaints just been filed? Is it uh, pre-summary judgment? Is it pre-trial? Is it? Uh, on appeal. All of those are possibilities and and it will inform in my mind whether you make a a demand going in. If a lot of things have happened in litigation, you should probably make a demand because you have to recognize what's happened so far. If you're starting out fresh, oftentimes I'm reluctant to come into a mediation having already made a demand because I don't want to set a ceiling before I even know whether the insurance company is willing to play.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one other edge to that double edged sword is uh, sometimes if your client wants to go in super aggressive, for example, you know, there could be the concern that if you come in so high, the mediation is off, right? And one of the benefits of going through the mediation process is you're going to have that third party intermediary who will be able to turn down the temperature, right? So sometimes I won't do a demand, especially if it's going to be you know, nearly 100% of the claim where we're graciously agreeing to forego prejudgment interest. I'm usually going to save that until we actually have everybody assembled in the room. Whereas if you're really wanting to to streamline the mediation process, sometimes it does make sense to make that demand before you get there so that people have an idea of what what neighborhood you're in to get the claim resolved. Joe, what about you? You want to weigh in on that debate of whether to make that demand in advance or not?
3: Yeah, I guess my view is it depends where the parties are and whether the parties know each other's respective positions. If you know that a carrier is at zero, then you might find that it's less fruitful to go in making a demand. But if, say, you're in a a dispute regarding valuation or business interruption type claim, and they know they're going to pay something, then it's probably good to get that number out on the table.
1: Andrew, what are the most important factors that, that go into formulating? That opening demand? What are what are some of the things that our clients need to be thinking about before they put that number out there?
2: I think the number one thing is a, is a healthy analysis of the likelihood of success on the claim. So understanding the case law and the facts of your claim and, and being real, whether it's a really strong claim or a weak claim uh, or something in between. So that that starts the process, I think. Secondly, I think understanding the the carrier and the, and the carrier's viewpoint on the claim is important. If you're going to resolve it through mediation, you have to have the ability to not only understand the carrier's position but rebut it and respond to it.
1: Yeah, I think one other thing I would throw out there that I always like to know before I get to the mediation is what is the business relationship between the policyholder and the insurers or insurers. And to think very broadly about that, not just for the policy that was issued that's the subject of this dispute, but is there a broader business relationship there that can be leveraged? Are there other coverage lines that this carrier is getting premium on? That will be a very useful arrow to have in your quiver later. That may be useful to break a logjam later. All right. So, Joe... Tell us another sort of key issue that's discussed before you ever get to the mediation, in addition to whether you make that demand, is tell me about what the process is with the briefs and the statement of the case that you're going to submit to the mediator. What are some of the considerations that go into, one, preparing that document? You know, should it be the equivalent of a summary judgment brief or something else? and then two what are the the pluses and minuses to exchanging those statements before you get to the mediation or reasons maybe you don't want to do that
3: sure on the the form of it itself i think you know it it comes down to knowing your mediator you know we find some mediators who are going to look at a couple of documents and maybe read the most important case but i don't know a lot of mediators who are going to read every single case uh (laughs) like it's a summary judgment brief And, and you know hopefully you've chosen somebody who actually understands insurance and can at least grasp the concept quickly. As far as whether to share, I think that comes down again to the stage of the case. If you're at a beginning stage and you don't really know each other's positions very well, uh, then there might be some benefit to actually agreeing to exchange briefs. But if if you've been at it for a while and you've already briefed summary judgment, then it's probably less valuable to exchange summary judgment or exchange mediation briefs.
1: Yeah, you know, just I'll add my two cents there on the issue of exchanging or not. I've had instances where we don't agree to exchange, and the very first thing the mediator wants us to do when we get to the mediation is share the briefs because they think it's going to be very valuable and and whatnot. And and so for that reason, I just think it streamlines the process to agree right out of the gate to share. And if I've got super sensitive things or I want to, I want to be a little bit more commercial in my view of the claim. Uh, One thing that I've done in the past is given the submission that gets shared and then send a separate side letter that's for the mediator's eyes only if there's a particular issue that I'm not ready to share yet in the mediation process. So, Andrew, what about opening statements? Uh, Once you actually get to the mediation, is that something that you're in favor of? What are the pluses and minuses of doing that?
2: You know, over the years, I've kind of moved away from them. Uh, in, in early in my career, that was a big thing. You'd spend a half a day doing you know, full presentations like oral arguments with PowerPoints and the whole nine <laughs> yards. And, and we've kind of moved away from that. More now, it's the coverage lawyers and positions, and you sort of start getting right into the merits. The one time I still think it's useful is if you feel like the people with the authority in the other room are cold to the claim and you want to bring them through the claim factually and legally, then it may be a benefit. But I would say more often than not, we skip the opening statements.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. The, the the times that I've had opening statements, all it does is entrench people's positions more. You know, I've, I've never once attended a mediation where an opening statement had the other side say, you know, you're right. How much should I make that check payable for? Um, so anyway. <laughs> all right. Well, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask Andrew and Joe, each of you to give your top three most important steps that need to be taken to prepare for a successful mediation.
3: Yeah, and I can go first on that one. I, I think, number one, come up with a list of three to five questions that you think are going to be very difficult for your adversary to be able to answer. And on the other side of that is understand the warts of your claim and be prepared to be able to respond to some of the, the difficult questions that you know are coming. And then finally- Great tip
1: there. That's a great tip.
3: And, and then finally- start the day kind of knowing where your client wants to end up and with the goal in mind. So that way you can uh, steer the day in that direction.
1: And then you can subtract X percent from that. Cause they're going to, they're going to be negotiating with you as much as they're negotiating with the other side. Right. Andrew, what about you?
2: Number one, know the strengths and weaknesses of your damages claim. Yep. Number two, have your key document or case annotated and ready to handle the mediator in the private room because he or she has been hearing things all day long. You wanna put right in front of them, the key document or the key case. And number three, have a strategy to get close, but you don't finish how you finish. It may be whispering in the mediator's ear. It might be asking for a mediator's proposal. It might be something else, but have that strategy to bring it home if you're close.
1: All right, well, that's that's great to get ready. And it sets the table for us beautifully for our next episode, where we are going to have all sides of the mediation represented. We'll have, um, obviously, the champions of Policyholder Council, the folks from Lowenstein-Sandler. We will have a claims representative who will tell you, uh, give you some insights into what's happening in the other room. And then finally, we'll be pleased to be joined by a mediator who's going to tell us uh, some of his uh, secret sauce skills on how to get us moved from our enchanted positions to actually starting to talk to get somewheres in the middle. But I'd like to thank both Andrew and Joe for sharing your insights. I think you gave some really great nuggets uh, for what our clients need to do to position themselves to succeed before they ever get to the mediation. So thanks for joining us today and, and sharing your insights. Thanks, Linda.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowensteincom slash podcasts or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Loenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.